1: Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a really great time talking with Christopher Nugent about his recent book, Manifest in Words Written on Paper, producing and circulating poetry in Tang Dynasty, China. That came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2010. Now, this is an extraordinarily thoughtfully produced book. It's an award-winning book. And you can see after uh, sort of reading through it, and hopefully you'll get a sense of this from listening to Christopher talk about it, just why um, that is. It's a book that is very focused and very explicit about being focused on a very local case study um, that is the production and experience of poetry in Tang Dynasty China, but the kinds of issues that come up in the course of this study. Issues like how do we think about texts as material objects? What's the relationship between orality um, and the the art of writing in producing a document or a text? Um, what does it involve and what has it involved and what can it involve to form a collection of the works of an individual author? And when you kind of mess with all of the assumptions that we take for granted about all of these things, how might that change the way we think of authorship and the way we think of um, a work, an original work or original work of art as being some unified, unitary thing? It's a very, very rich study. Um, It was great fun talking with Christopher about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Christopher. Hi, Carla. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Christopher Nugent about his book, Manifest in Words Written on Paper, Producing and Circulating Poetry in Tang Dynasty, China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Christopher. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
0: Well, thanks for asking me.
1: Well, this is a great book, um, and I'll just sort of I'll get this right on the table. I was really excited about reading this, um, and that excitement persisted throughout the process, and I'm still excited right now. It's one of the great things about this, and um, I'm really looking forward to talking to you over the course of this hour because I know this is going to come out. Even though the study is very focused and you're very clear about this on a very specific case, there are really wide-ranging implications um, for other fields, for a lot of other fields, I think based on what you're doing here. And it's really made me think about um, and look at poetry completely differently. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Christopher, could you start us out, um, as is kind of typical um, for new books in East Asian Studies, by telling us a little bit about what brought you to this field? Why um, the history of Chinese literature and why this topic in particular?
0: Yeah, I guess uh, in terms of what brought me into the field, it was a pretty circuitous route. I, when I started in college, I thought I was interested in, uh, in colonial U.S. history, a topic in which I never ended up taking a single class. Uh, I had had kind of a, vague, rebellious Catholic interest in Buddhism and other things that seemed at the time as as far away from Catholicism as I could imagine. And um, and I somewhat on a whim took a a course on Asian religions my first semester in college and then took a, a long series of much more focused courses uh, in college with uh, Hal Roth on Buddhism and mostly on Taoism but on you know Chinese thought early Chinese thought in general and uh, I really found myself taken with a lot of aspects of uh, Buddhist doctrine. Uh, certain aspects of i guess broadly speaking buddhist aesthetics and and buddhist philosophy and as i got more interested in that i found myself wanting to know more and more about the the context so i did more Courses on Chinese history, uh, mostly earlier Chinese history, uh, also, um, courses in, in philosophy, uh, philosophy of religion, philosophy of, uh, philosophy of language, especially. I was actually a religious studies major through this as an undergraduate, um, some courses on Chinese art with Maggie Bickford and, um, I just kind of – it kept building on itself, uh, wanting to know more and more about about the context and um, eventually started language training quite late actually, not until my my junior year in college. Um, you know, after college, I was actually – originally, I thought I wanted to go to grad school. Then I thought I wanted to drop all of it. <laughs> And I lived in China for a couple of years and came back and decided, indeed, I wanted to go to grad school. And when I started grad school, I actually thought I still wanted to do something with Buddhism, maybe something about the intellectual interactions of uh, Song Dynasty, Confucians and Buddhists at the time and started grad school thinking that that's what I was going to do um, But I ended up taking some classes early on with uh, Stephen Owen and I found them – both the classes uh, and him and I guess also the the material – really inspiring and moved me in a way that thinking about uh, Buddhist and Confucian doctrine hadn't quite moved me. And so I actually shifted my – third year in grad school, I guess, Uh, second or third year, I guess it was in the second year to literature. And to be honest, at that time, I knew very little about uh, about Chinese literature. I actually had never taken a Chinese literature course as an undergrad, and it really started in grad school. But it was a combination of uh, a great advisor, a really interesting material. And also, at that time, I felt – a really engaging group of fellow grad students uh, that were wonderful to work with and wonderful to be in class with and to and to talk with and to learn things from and um, Obviously, have kept going with it since then.
1: That's really inspiring. And it also, I think, helps explain um, what's very a very, at least for the reader, obvious um, feature of the book, which, which is its re- really clear, wide intellectual range. I think one of the things um, I was going to ask you about later on, and we'll, we'll get to this in the course of the book, um, is to talk a little bit about... Um, you're what seems to be an interest in bringing the kinds of phenomena and the kinds of ways of looking at texts that you are bringing to poetry in this book to other fields like you mentioned religious studies um, very explicitly at several points and and this is actually kind of explaining a little bit of where that might have come from
0: yeah yeah and in fact you know the, my undergraduate thesis was dealing with uh an, with, you know, encounter dialogue koans in the, in the Tang and Sung. And though I actually hadn't thought about this through much of grad school when I was looking at literature, but when I was working on the dissertation and thinking back on questions that had been important to me, I realized that my undergraduate thesis had dealt with... A particular type of dialogue that in which transition between oral and written forms uh, actually played a key role. And I looked at it in a much more superficial way as an undergraduate because. You know, my thought was more superficial, and my language skills were, were really lacking at that point, but I realized that there is an interest in this kind of movement uh, from from early on, and questions about the materiality of texts that are uh, texts and things uh, that are later on dealt with in a less material way. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is, in the acknowledgments of the book, you mentioned that this is um, a book that came originally from a dissertation. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that process of transforming this from a dissertation to a book manuscript? Were there any major changes, major transformations? Um, What was the process like for you? I
0: think one of the – the one aspect that I think dominated was – really questions of writing. I mean, the the dissertation was written very much in a dissertation mode where a lot of it was getting things down on paper, getting findings down, uh, you know, trying to do one's best to get the implications down, but not paying as much attention uh, as would be ideal to to prose and the way arguments were really formulated and structured. And I think one of the big challenges of that transition from dissertation to book was moving away from, and I guess this actually works well with the topic, but a sort of more oral mode of expression, which is my natural way of writing and trying to craft it into something that was, uh, that presented its arguments in a in a better, more cohesive more cohesive way. And you know, I'd like to think that I made a lot of progress in that transition, but it's also, it was also a transition in which I got a lot of help from other people. And you know, my wife was also in the field, was a wonderful reader of every single word I wrote in both the dissertation and the book, and helping me see how to uh, how to get the prose to work better in a, a written form. Another big transition for me was just. Uh, The opportunity to look much more deeply at a lot of these questions and to go back and look for new sources and new materials that in some cases added to the arguments that I already had made, but in a lot of cases changed them as well. And I think that was probably more true for... I guess it was more true for the chapter dealing with memory than for any of the other chapters. I really uh, pretty radically rethought uh, my ideas about how memory was working in this period uh, in the course of, of writing the book as opposed to the dissertation. There are some things that a lot of new work went into that don't produce that much change. I think ultimately in the book, the the whole chapter on Xinfuyin, uh, the the Dunhuang text, I I went back and redid all of the the research for that. Essentially, I took the texts, the actual the manuscripts and blew them up again on the computer and again went through character by character Mm -hmm. sometimes holding a microscope up over a printed version of these things trying to figure out what this character was and then changed completely the way that i counted them originally i had done kind of variation across a set of a text instead of doing it through the pairs Mm -hmm. and the pairs the counting was was much more time consuming but i think the result that it came up with was much more interesting and persuasive. Um, and then, of course, it's just a larger question of organization. You know, how do you, how do you put all these things together in a way that's making um, not only a lot of sub-arguments, but also a larger argument that's going to be a meaningful contribution to the literature? And... You know, as academics we 're obviously always working under different incentives. You know we want to get the dissertation done so we can go out and get a job. We want to get the first book done so we can get tenure and um, but at the same time we we want to do something meaningful and I think that I had the time with the book to focus more on doing something that I, I felt and I hoped at least was, was meaningful and would add to the field. That's
1: great. Now, the book, you've mentioned um, these Dunhuang manuscript copies of this poem um, that dominates the first chapter. So I want to ask you about that. But first, just to, to say for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book, And this is a book that came out in 2010. The book itself is a study of poetry that's focused in the Tang Dynasty. And there are a couple of major issues that as we move through the book, uh, you raise as a way of thinking about how to um, kind of approach the creation and circulation of poetry materially. So there's a focus on uh, the materiality of poetry. There's a focus on kind of rethinking um, the way we understand authorship to work. Mm -hmm. These poems. And you take us through, as you mentioned, chapters on um, textual variation in these manuscripts in Dunhuang. There's a chapter on memory practices, a chapter on orality, um, on writing um, in the creation and circulation of poetry. And then finally, we look at, uh, before the conclusion, we look at compilations of works um, in the Tang. So let's actually move through some of this and get right into um, right into the work. So you've already mentioned this poem the Qin Fu Yin um, so this is probably a good place to start. The particular focus of the first chapter is on this set of eight manuscript copies of this poem um, from Dunhuang. Can you talk a little bit about what that poem is for listeners who may not be familiar with this, and why um, you chose this as an important uh, document or set of documents for looking at these issues?
0: Sure. The poem is a a very lengthy narrative. Poem by uh, an author named Wei Zhuang, um, uh, who's writing in the late Tang, and it's a story of this woman moving through these these uh, geographically through these different areas and what she encounters along the way. It's uh, it's interesting. I realize now that I haven't uh, I haven't reread the poem in a very long time. and when I was working on it, of course, I was working on it in such little bits and pieces that sometimes one, one definitely did lose the, the forest for the trees. Um, it's, uh, it's an unusual poem in some ways. It's the longest surviving poem from the tongue, so by that uh, by that fact alone, it's unusual. It's uh, one thousand six hundred and sixty-six characters. The the basic basic poem. Obviously, there's variation in there. Uh, and as someone who was brought up Catholic, that number always drove me crazy <laughs> uh, <laughs> for superstitious reasons. Um, but it's. Um, it was interesting on a number of levels. Uh, one, it, we know it was very popular uh, at the time, not long after its composition. You know, so popular that Wei Zhuang gets closely associated with that poem in his lifetime. Um, but the poem disappears, and uh, it's not recorded anywhere after the Song. And until we found the the, the Dunhuang manuscripts, nobody had read the poem for uh, many, many hundreds of years. And I think it was Herbert Giles who was looking through the the manuscripts that had been. Um, Shall we say pilfered and brought to the, ultimately to the British Museum uh, and he found he was looking at this manuscript and he saw these two lines that he recognized as lines that were quoted in a you know a miscellany from the tongue from this poem, Qin Fu that that uh, was no longer extant. And he realized he was, you know, quite possibly the first person in, in many, many centuries to have a copy of that poem in front of him. Um, and there are a number of other copies that were found. I look at eight. There are fragments uh, that were also found. There may be other copies there as well. So you have a poem that was, that we know was very popular uh, in its own time that then disappeared and never made it into the the print culture in the song. And then we have rediscovered. So that in and of itself, I think, says interesting things about certain types of uh, authorial authority. Um, On top of that, for more almost logistical reasons for what I was trying to do, the fact that it's very long and the fact that there are so many copies of it, there's no other poem with that many copies of it that we found from Dunhuang made it very, very useful for this kind of textual analysis, looking at variants over a number of manuscripts. Um, The fact that all of these manuscripts were found, you know, really in a single room makes that even more interesting. It's one thing to say that, you know, this this medieval text where we have a copy from Italy and we have another copy from Ireland has a lot of variation. It's something else to say that these these two scrolls that have been sitting next to each other in this, this cave for thousands of years actually have uh, a really high degree of variation.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you use these, uh, this collection of manuscripts of this particular poem, to bring us into the issues of materiality, um, and th- this really starts us off thinking in these terms. And this proceeds for the rest of the book. Now, among the issues that you raise in terms of the you know, thinking materially about poems, um, these include the taking seriously the format of a manuscript. So you mentioned the the important difference between the production and reading of a poem, if it's um, a scroll form versus a bound booklet. You talk about the the process of what it might have been like to copy these manuscripts, and you've already mentioned that one of the things that you do in this chapter that's I think really fascinating is to do a kind of data analysis of the kinds of textual variation that exist um, across these manuscripts. Can you talk a little bit about that issue of textual variation? What kinds of variation um, did you find to be really important here? And can you talk a little bit about your your method?
0: That sure, well, in terms of, you know, there are lots of different kinds of variation, as you point out. I mean, in terms of just formal variation, as you said, I was looking at the different modes of presentation of the, the poem. Uh, is, it, is it in scroll form? Is it in booklet form? uh what uh how many characters are written per line is there any kind of punctuation what's the handwriting like i'm trying to get at to some extent what the the different experiences of reading this poem would have been like and i think that's something that we're you know in the In modern, the modern West, uh, I suppose in the modern world, we're at a really interesting moment where we've simultaneously lost any sense of what it was really like to deal with manuscripts, to deal with these very messy things put together by people who are not putting together a product that they were trying to sell. So we're kind of we're, – we're, we're very far away from that world. At the same time – Perhaps in a more radical way than has happened in a very long time, we're starting to confront the realities of reading texts in very, very different mediums. And I think you know, those of us in, in, uh, in the academy are now realizing when we do searches for a book on our, uh, through our library's website, we're finding that there are certain books only available – in uh, in digital copies. Mm-hmm. The experience of reading something on a screen is a very different one from reading something in a book and th- the way those kind of characteristics carry over from book to screen, what gets jettisoned, how different it's going to be in 10 years, I think you know, brings us to a greater awareness of these issues than, than people may have had even 50 years ago. So that got me thinking about what the experience of actually encountering Poetry in the Tongue was really like. Now, in terms of differences in content, and that's what I spent the most time on, I was um, interested in how the text changes as it gets transmitted over time and space, Uh, how – How do the characters change? Do they get changed into different forms? Do they get omitted? Do they get added to? Uh, uh, Are they, in fact, replaced with different words? How do these kind of replacements work? Uh, What sorts of variants can we think of as likely errors? What kinds of variants can we think of as intentional revisions? Are there types of variation that can tell us something about how this poem might have moved through different formats across time and space? Do certain types of variation indicate that there was probably a memorial transmission? Do certain types of variants tell you that this this poem was clearly copied by someone who had another written text at hand? And uh, I found that whole process uh, fascinating. It was, it was very interesting to me as an intellectual exercise to look at a certain type of, of variant and say, okay, is this definitive proof of memorial transmission? We look at this variant and say the only way this could reasonably have happened is if somebody had memorized this poem and was passing it on uh, through their memory. Uh, Can we know that, if that's the case, that the copy we have was written down from memory? Or can this variant tell us nothing more than at some point along the chain of variation, somebody had memorized the poem and it had changed in their mind somehow? And what 's frustrating about that process is in fact, how little you can know definitively about the text you 're looking at uh, it 's very possible that a variant in this text could have uh, could have occurred five, ten, fifty copies ago. You just don't know. Uh, There are some cases at the same time where you can see, and these are very exciting, how variation has crept into the specific physical text you're looking at, where you can see how a scribe must have uh, skipped a line, realized it, Gone back, crossed out uh, a string of characters that he'd just written, and started again. And that kind of that kind of contact with another human being who was producing this physical text, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, over a thousand years ago. Um, I found to be really moving in a lot of ways. Now, admittedly, I'm, I wasn't sitting in the, the uh, British library looking at these. I was looking at this – at a, a photograph of this on my computer. And so I'm, I'm obviously removed a level from that. I'm touching what the Dunhuang scribe uh, touched himself a thousand years ago. But I think those traces of humanity that you see there in the text and knowing that somebody – Experience the poem, Qin Fuyin, through this messy thing that I'm looking at in front of me. And somebody liked it enough to spend a fair amount of time copying it all down, uh, really added a lot of meaning to, to what I was doing. Do you
1: think because you just sort of raised the issue of um, sitting in the in the British library with the actual copies of the scrolls, do you think it would have changed anything for you in in terms of the way you were um, looking at and writing about these documents if you did have um, these sort of. The act, of, I hesitate to say, actual physical um, yeah. copies, because one of the things I think you're doing really brilliantly in this book is getting us to sort of rethink um, the the idea of an original, right, or the original uh, work. I think very productively. But do you think that would
0: have changed anything for you? <laughs> I don't think that it would have changed the arguments that I ended up making. I think it would have changed uh, – it would have changed – I mean maybe my emotional engagement with these objects in a certain way. I mean there are things that you can do – on the computer with these images that you can't do uh, with the physical text in front of you the same way. Now that I think that itself brings up an interesting question, which is the things that I can do with the computer looking at these texts in terms of, and I'm thinking here of like, you know, blowing up characters, you take a really high definition photo and then you're blowing things up and you can look at them really closely. You can, on the one hand, you can get closer to to that text. I mean you, you literally get, uh, get closer to those characters and, and see them bigger. At the same time, I suppose you are distancing yourself – from that reading experience that somebody had a thousand years ago, because they couldn't do that, I suppose they could hold the thing up really close to their face, but they couldn't blow it up the way I blew it up on the on the computer. So when I'm making judgments about, oh, this the, this is the character that this scribe actually wrote, or uh, this is how he he wrote this character accidentally. Um, if I just had the text in front of me, and if I was a reader in Dunhuang in you know nine forty or something, uh, I might have missed those. So there's so there is a distancing there as well. And I have to say, I hadn't really thought about that particular question until uh, that particular issue until you asked me about that right now.
1: But I think it's actually um, and. Sort of, we'll move on from this, but I think it's of a piece with the kind of argument that you're making in the work, and that there are various, I mean, one of the things you are really pointing us to is the variation and the productive variation in terms of not just composition of these texts, but also reading experiences, right? It's not, I mean, these, it's not to say, um, I, I don't think there's anything inherently more, and I'm convinced even more from reading your book that there's nothing inherently sort of better or more authentic, I think, by having the actual paper copy versus what you're doing, so... Yeah. Um, so a couple of the things that you mentioned in talking about this chapter, um, one of the things you mentioned, which I think is, is I'll just point to it um, verbally for readers, there's a really uh, beautiful, I think, and very helpful account of how we might really read errors or sort of giving us a new way of reading errors in the context of appreciating tongue poems as material objects. You also mentioned the issue of memory, and this brings us into the next chapter. Um, so the next chapter looks at the concept. Content And the methods of memorial practices or memory practices in the medieval period, focusing, mm-hmm. focusing on the tongue and focusing on poetry. Um, now, a couple of there are a couple of things I want to ask you here. But what I want to start off with is something that you um, mentioned earlier at the beginning of our conversation. You pointed out this chapter as the one that. Transformed or sort of radically changed, perhaps the most from the first instantiation of this work to the book. Can you talk about those changes? Sort of what changed radically for you in in working on this?
0: I think uh, that. I One of the issues that hadn't really occurred to me as much at the beginning was that – I guess I went in sort of thinking uh, what I had learned to some extent, which is that people in this period had incredible memories and set huge amounts of text uh, in those memories and that they were so thoroughly trained that they could recite – you know, scroll after scroll after scroll uh, without error. That when people were were preparing for the civil service exams, they would essentially memorize uh, you know uh, whole sets of the classics, what gets referred to as the, the memorization corpus, the Wen Xian, et cetera, and that. That's, uh, that's, I think, something that had sort of been taken for granted. And I I think I didn't push too hard against that when I was writing the dissertation. I was more interested in looking at, okay, how how did they do this? How was memory working? Uh, How did things change in the course of memorization? And – the more I looked at what the sources were saying and the more, and this is after the dissertation, the more I looked into the details of what people had to memorize for the exams and the ways they were actually tested on the exam. And the more I looked at uh, European analogs from similar periods or at least Under somewhat similar cultural conditions, namely prior to the advent of print where there was more limited textual availability and where you had an educational context that emphasized memorization. The more I was struck by the fact that uh, people didn't seem to be memorizing things nearly as much as I had uh, been led to believe. And uh, that realization made me look more deeply into what these memorization techniques were like and also uh, whether or not they were actually uh, particularly effective ones. Uh, I had – kind of gone originally with the assumption that of course, uh, you know, Chinese scholars in this period memorized huge amounts of text. They must have been great at memorizing and and in fact, I, I came away feeling that certainly they were better at memorizing than I am, but, um, but the techniques did not have the kind of efficiency and the kind of effectiveness that a lot of the more uh, carefully articulated European techniques had. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for this. I think one of the, you know, an obvious material explanation is simply that written texts were much more available in uh, in Tang Dynasty China than they were in the broadly defined medieval period in Europe. Uh, textual production was much much cheaper, and uh, there were pretty substantial amounts uh, numbers of literate people, and so there were there were marketplaces for written text to a much greater extent than there were in in Europe at the time. So people didn't have the same need to memorize everything, and you know there's. More recent studies showing how our memories are, are being affected in, uh, I suppose, negative ways or weakening ways at least by Internet resources constantly at our disposal, that uh, that we have facts there all the time. So I imagine that's one factor. I think there are other issues – uh, in terms of how the exams tested things and also the social context in which people learned and and how they were learning um, i um, and I guess a lot of that thinking happened after the dissertation. Uh, it didn't really happen when I was writing the dissertation, and some of it actually happened in a very late stage of preparing preparing the manuscript.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of um, discussion in this chapter of a kind of comparative, uh, or it's, there's a lot of comparative context that's. Understanding memory practices in Tang China, alongside or compared with, or in, in contradistinction to memory practices um, in uh, at a similar time in Europe, did you do did that kind of reading about these memory practices in Europe um, change the way you thought about this, or is that something that was in the first stages of this project as well?
0: No, that that changed uh, changed a lot of how I was thinking about things. I had I had done some reading and European practices uh, for the dissertation, but uh, but to be frank, it was it was rather cursory. And uh, in the process of the process of, of turning the dissertation into a book, I did much 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 more reading in these, and I think much more careful reading. Uh, part of that is because this was an issue that I found particularly interesting, and it was also an issue that I hadn't seen people write about. For the uh, the Chinese case, even broadly defined, almost anywhere other than you know Jonathan Spence's book on Matteo Ricci, but I certainly had seen nothing about. Uh, memory practices in uh, in medieval China in any language, and that intrigued me. I mean, it, it frightened me, I suppose, to some extent, but it also uh, it also intrigued me. And because memory and memory practices especially when they start to become articulated as practices are a kind of technology i found that an interesting way to think about uh, think about what was going on and in some ways i would say issues that came up in the memory chapter have stayed with me more strongly moving into my next project. I'm not going to get into that now, but but there are a lot of questions that came up that I didn't feel I had the time or space to answer in this first book uh, that I'm looking forward to looking into in more depth next.
1: Now, what were some of those um, technologies of memorization that people were using in the tongue?
0: Well, that's one of the interesting things, was really the lack of... Of memory technologies in the Tang. When you look at the European case, uh, you think about things like memory palaces, the Loki method, the kind of journey method, all these different ways of situating, uh, situating bits of data in some kind of a spatial framework uh, really took advantage of the way the you know the way the human mind has or the human brain i suppose has evolved uh, in in the sense that we're more tuned to visual and spatial stimuli and thinking than we are to a lot of other ways of thinking about things. And the European practices take advantage of that. They use really – there's a real visual aspect to the text. And we know we've all seen this in illuminated manuscripts and ways in which the text incorporates a strong visual element. Now, the type – the equivalent texts in the Tang from what we know from both what we've seen in Dunhuang – and what we've uh, seen in the print culture that, that uh, mimicked those types of formats were uh, radically different. Uh, certainly, there are, there are texts with illustrations. They tended to be more religious texts. But if you think about the classics, if you think about uh, texts that people had to learn for the exam or pe- texts that people had to learn to be an educated person, something like the Shen uh, there is no visual element; you just have continuous running lines of text and if you if you want to memorize something uh, that 's a really bad format to have things in uh, in terms of memorizing something uh, something quickly and efficiently so that lack of technology in the case of the tong I found really striking and uh, and so it made me focus really on what is the what is the method and from Everything that I could tell for practical memorial purposes, the method was really rote memorization, uh, reciting things again and again and again. Now, doing this does bring into play different senses, Uh, you know, recitation. Makes neural connections between what your mouth is doing, what your you know what your tongue is doing, what your ears are hearing, and if you do this while you're looking at a text, then obviously you do have a visual element there as well but it's not uh, it's not something that was designed for memorial purposes the way the a lot of the European texts were. Uh, It takes a lot more time. Uh, But there were things, I mean, it's clear that people would be, students would be tested on things repeatedly, asked to recite things repeatedly. And that type of structured practice, we know, is, uh, is an aid to memory um so it's interesting to think about those those things i i mentioned in there that i that uh, uh somebody uh, robert ashmore at, at berkeley had mentioned after hearing a talk i gave that uh Lei Shu, shu's writings arranged by category might be something that worked in a similar way and i I talked about that a little bit and I think that's actually something very intriguing that I'd like to look at more in the future
1: that was um, one of the really interesting things about this chapter is that you do bring us into the sort of the the kinds of qualities based on um, it seems like you're reading also of literature and the psychology of memory Mm -hmm. that do make memorization more fluid so uh, an expertise being one of them phonology issues of structuring of the text um, these were all really interesting parts to this chapter. Now, you also, this also, um, the idea of recitation or you're mentioning that brings us into um, what you're looking at in the next chapter which is focused on different functions and meanings of orality, the oral and tongue poetic culture. Now, you, you, I think, make a very convincing case here that orality was not a marker of something we might think of as you know, an immature literary culture, but it was a mm-hmm. conscious choice made by poets. So when we call a poetic culture like the Tang oral, when we talk about orality, what does that mean? Can you say a little bit about how orality functions in this context?
0: I think the... One of the most important and I, I suppose obvious ways that orality reality is working is simply that poetry, as far as we can tell, was essentially always read, recited out loud uh, and probably usually written out loud as well. So even when someone is, is writing a poem there, you know, from what we can tell from, you know, admittedly quite limited accounts they're probably intoning to some degree and you know one of the reasons it seems like this is the case is we have accounts of somebody you know writing poetry and somebody else and when they're by themselves you know alone in a room and complaining about uh, having someone else complain about how loud they are uh and they're clearly not talking about the sound of the the brush on the paper uh so uh, Poetry is something that has a sound value all the time. And I think that's something that gets that can get lost when we're reading it in a scholarly context. Now, I should note that there also there are plenty of scholars who have paid a lot of attention to uh, uh, to the the uh, oral effects a you uh, are effects of poetry of Tang poetry and what it must have sounded like at the time but i think the sense that poetry is something that's that's literally in the air that people are hearing that people are speaking out loud is an important aspect of that that there, that it's clear that there are cases where people know a poem because they heard it they'd never seen it written down they heard somebody uh, recited and they remembered it um, that when you met uh, met an old friend, You didn't hand them a bunch of scrolls and say, you know, here are these poems I've been working on. Why don't you go take a look at them and we'll we'll chat about them later. You recite them. You say, uh, you know, uh, would you like to hear some of my recent poems? And you recite them to the person. So there's that aspect all the time. And uh, another important aspect is the clear ties between orality as a mode of – Authentic expression, and I would always go as far as to say authentic uh, moral expression, even that grows out of the uh, the interpretive apparatus around the Shijing that you know really starts with the early stages of uh, of Chinese literary criticism and ways that poetry was conceived of from uh, from that point on. <laughs>
1: Can you say a little bit more about this connection between orality of poetry and authenticity?
0: I think the conceit is, the the kind of trope there is that the oral expression is, um, is spontaneous and is somehow... You know, truly expressing ones sure in a way that uh, becomes, let's at least say, more complicated with writing and its uh, its possibilities of revision and so forth. And I and I'm I'm well aware that this this privileging the oral is a complicated thing in uh, in modern Western literary philosophical thought as well. But I think just speaking of the of the tongue that that was the association that it's uh, it's a spontaneous outburst of uh of patterned sounds and tones and you know to paraphrase the uh paraphrase the yue jing and uh you, uh, and because of that, it's something that's to some extent beyond one's control, expressing something that's true and authentic. And the way that orality gets talked about in terms of poetic composition, at least in the tongue, does have a very heavy focus on spontaneity. I mean, there are other oral cultures uh, in the world and in history where you have an entirely oral poetry uh, that's never written down uh, but is composed over a period of time where somebody spends a long time mentally crafting a poem and saying the poem out loud to himself or herself and then Presenting a finished, carefully refined and revised product. That entire process has been oral and mental, but uh, it doesn't have the type of connotation of spontaneity that I think orality brings with it in – in the
1: tongue. Now, one of the really interesting things that comes out of this chapter is that you're urging us to think about poems also in the context of a kind of economy. And so um, there's a really interesting discussion here about poetry, perhaps as a kind of, or poems perhaps as commodities and oral poetry in particular, uh, the role of oral poetry in a marketplace. Can you speak a little bit to that
0: issue? <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, and it's, it's interesting the the role that uh, that oral poetry can play in a marketplace is very different from the role that a poem would play as a commodity itself. So if you're talking about buying and selling poems, that's very different but in a in the kind of commercial context that oral poetry can play a part it's important because it's a way to transmit information over time and space uh, fairly quickly. Now, this can be information about a particular courtesan. It can be information about a particular establishment in the entertainment quarters. And it's functioning in certain contexts uh, not that differently from advertising ditties, which, of course, uh, typically rhyme. And you know, follow a basic, uh, a basic simple meter that uh, people find easy to remember. And I think poetry was working in a similar way in some of those contexts. That because it was short and easy to remember, for a lot of the reasons I talked about in the second chapter, that it could uh, it could transmit information, and that information had value. Uh, you know, information inherently has val- Different types of Value to different people, but to pass on information about an establishment, in the entertainment quarters makes that poem valuable to the um, to the establishment. Makes it valuable to people who are looking for information about the best uh, the best place to go or a place to avoid. Uh, it works in a similar context, I think, also in the entertainment quarters with uh, with courtesans. Now, oral poetry can also spread around gossip about people in a way that uh, the way that I think was uh, was playing out in this period as well. You know, another example I give in the book is a performance context. Uh, the poetry has value as a performance repertoire, uh, that somebody who can perform a poem, uh, you know, something, Chang uh, Hong uh, uh, is an example that I think I give here, uh, a courtesan who claims that, the claim is that because she could perform this lengthy poem in a certain way, that her her marriage price, her value went up. And there I think it's a case of The performance being particularly important, the ability to emphasize things in the right way. It's not that she was valuable because she had composed this poem, but that she she could perform it in a way that added value to the poem, which in turn added value to her and her abilities. You know, if you think of – it's probably not – even though it's an entirely different context, if we think about the kind of American songbook and, you know, Ella Fitzgerald performing a song in a different way from uh, from how Frank Sinatra is going to perform that song, uh, the song is, I suppose, the song is the same, but they're uh, but they're doing something that adds value, and the the song adds value to them as well.
1: Okay. Thank you. Now the next chapter turns to the written aspect of poetry in the tongue. And written poetry in the tongue, as you show us, was not just poetry written on paper or similar materials, but also you bring us into um, the importance of poems being inscribed on materials other than the page. So inscribed on walls and objects on public locations and poems, you you take us through the importance of poems sent by the postal service. So can you talk a little bit to this um, or speak a little bit to the processes of sort of writing and copying poetry? Because copy in particular becomes really important here and brings us back um, to these issues of materiality and textual variation that we looked at in the first chapter. What were actual copying practices like and what were the implications of those practices for the circulation of poetry in the tongue?
0: Yeah, you know, it's... uh... There's a wide, wide, wide variety of copying practices. I mean I think we can see this as ranging from say on the one hand, a uh, a son sitting down with uh, scrolls of poems that his recently deceased father had written and carefully – Copying these down onto a new scroll that will be, or a new set of scrolls that will be, his or pieces of paper that are later pasted into scrolls. I guess actually, pasted together to make a scroll that will form his his father's literary collection. That will be his his legacy. Maybe this is something that's going to be presented uh, presented to the court, presented to the uh, you know to the imperial library, and uh, incredible care will be taken with something like that. So. So if we have that as one at one end of a spectrum, um, then at the other end we could have someone in a post station far away from the Capitol who sees a poem that's uh, written on a you know written on a pillar in the post station, uh, really likes it. And decides to jot it down himself, um, and uh, and you know writes it quickly on a scrap of paper that he has around after uh, you know using a, a brush and ink or something, and is not going to do this with a particular amount of care. And even if we take those as two poles. Both of them kind of hide a long process of copying that can be behind that. So the son carefully copying down his father's words, trying to maintain the utmost fidelity to those words, might in some cases be working with copies of poems that originally he got by going around to his father's friends and saying, hey, do you have any of my, any of my dad's poems sitting around or do you remember any of my dad's poems? Poems. can you recite them for me and so as soon as we move back a step we get back into these questions of what kind of textual fidelity is there at these these different these different stages and in some ways I think even more interestingly how uh, how important was that textual fidelity to the actors at the time? Uh, if, if the son asks his father's friend to recite one of his father's own poems, uh, and is the friend going to try really carefully to remember the poem exactly? I'm- is he going to try to improve the poem as he's reciting it? Is he going to recite the poem that the son's father really should have uh, should have composed as opposed to the poem he did compose? Is he going to do that intentionally or is he going to do that uh, uh, unconsciously? Uh, all, when somebody's writing down a poem from a post station wall, what if there's a line in it that they don't like? What if there's a line in it they think is awkward? What if they think they could write a better line? Are they going to change that? Uh, From what we've seen, uh, from everything I could find in the process of this research, it seems to me that more likely than not, they would make those changes, Uh, that they didn't feel that that was problematic, that authors expected works like this to change over the course of transmission, and indeed, they did change over the course of transmission.
1: It's so interesting to think about these issues in terms of issues of authorship and how we understand uh, the poem as an object, right? The poem is an individual object. Now, you bring up in this chapter. And um, it's, it's also something that comes up a little earlier in the book, this issue of variation and the, the question of how much variation can there be in order for us to consider a bunch of these poems to be the same thing? To what extent or at what point does it become a new work?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Had, can you talk about that a little bit? Just because it's a really fascinating kind of version of this Sorites paradox.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is, and I mean, and there's a reason why the Sorites paradox is a paradox, right? Oh. <laughs> because, uh, because it's it's hard to know when you move from being a pile to a heap. I always forget which one is is bigger. <laughs> than the classical formulation of that, but uh, it's um, I think there are cases where there are cases at either end that what we can say. When we have two two versions of a poem, let's say, and uh, and in one of them there are a couple of radicals that were accidentally changed. When somebody uh, somebody meant to write uh, you know, river, and they accidentally wrote uh, wrote like the the, uh, the question word meaning why. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see where that's a mistake or uh, uh, or. It's a mistake that somebody is not, is going to recognize as a mistake, that they're not going to read as anything other than a mistake, either because of its Context in the line because of the uh, because of the rhythm of the poem because it's a mistake that lots of people make all the time. I saw this 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 uh, variant constantly in the Qinfuian poems and and similar ones. Writing "cheng" meaning you know to become wei to "cheng" uh, versus you know cheng Shi to "cheng," forgetting to put in the forget to put in the the earth radical there. So I think in those cases, we can say, okay, this this regulated poem of 40 characters with two things like this is not a different poem, right? Um, But I think there are other cases where things are changed enough, uh, in particular in lines that have received a lot of critical attention. And after writing the book, I, I ended up writing a, an article on Jiang the the Li Bai poem, like presenting, uh, bringing in the ale. And in different versions of that, I found cases where lines that had received a lot of critical attention, indeed lines that had come in some ways to define the poem, and were seen as uh, lines that were typical of Li Bai, uh, were lines that were not in certain versions of the poem. And I think when you get into that realm, then you really are talking about uh, a different work, that you've crossed some some sort of line, and that if you would Read the poem as saying something very different or having a very different type of relation to its author, then I think you're moving into a realm where you have something that's reasonably different. I also think there are contexts in which you know I bring up the some performative contexts where poems get chopped up and only certain sections get used and they get reworked into a context where there's a kind of excited performance going on of a poem that originally may have been a very personal lament and I think you can have a situation like that where Even if in the portion that's being performed, nothing is changed from – and again, when I say nothing is changed, changed from what? Even saying that assumes that we have some kind of set original. But say there's no alteration there. I think you're still dealing with a a different work in a lot of ways. You're dealing with something that's been decontextualized and that's being given an entirely new meaning by a new performance context. And so I think when we're talking about – how poetry existed and was experienced in the tongue, then a difference like that is a very meaningful uh, difference. Uh, The same way that if we hear um, Bruce Springsteen snarl born in the USA at a concert protesting the Iraq war, that work is functioning in a radically different way than it is uh, when uh, George Bush is, you know, using it at a campaign stop in the, um, you know, in the late '80s, uh, missing the message. So the context there really makes a difference. Right.
1: Thank you. So as we sort of wrap up here, we don't have a whole lot more time. I, don't, I would love to keep you actually for two hours, but I don't. <laughs> I won't keep you for two hours. The final chapter of the book before the conclusion, I just want to just mention a couple of things um, that are really interesting here and then use it as a, a place to jump off and ask you two questions that move us from this very local case study to um, broader implications. And so this chapter, you've already mentioned um, a little bit about the issue of collecting poetry. And so this chapter looks at individual literary collections from various um, perspectives. And so you take us through the different kinds of processes that were involved in compiling literary collections in the Tang. You take us through um, the issue of prefaces to these compilations as sources of evidence. And there's a really wonderful, I think, for the historian, especially um, there's a really wonderful sense in which history comes into this and the Anlushan Rebellion in particular as something that really transforms or affects or has shaped even what poetry, what poetic corpus exists, what we have. And there's a really wonderful set of um, complaints about how entire sets of poems were destroyed based on the, or because of this rebellion. And so I think there's a really interesting transdisciplinary discussion about the poems as material objects here. Now, the chapter concludes by taking us from this very local case study of um, the Tang to comparing this with what happens after in terms of attitudes towards um, compilations and collections of poems. Can you speak a little bit to the distinction between um, what's happening in the Tang compared with what we see, for example, in the Song or later? How do things change significantly from what we've seen here in terms of collections?
0: Yeah, I think speaking very broadly, um, the real difference is one of attitude towards the poems as, as objects, really. How are people thinking of these? And in the tongue, I, you know, I, I really had the sense that people approach the poems, more often than not, as I mean, people who are compiling literary collections, um, if they're not just compiling it because it was the, it was Dad's poems, but compiling collections for friends or putting together things, it's because they liked the poems. Uh, they the basic mode was the mode of the fan. They were, I mean, again and again, the prefaces say hal shirja, which you know. In some ways, I think it's probably, though I didn't translate it this way, best translated as a fan. Uh, this is, these poems will receive a lot of attention from fans. Fans will love these poems. Um, and that, um, that kind of relationship is a, I wouldn't say it's a, an uncritical relationship because I think, you know, we all know that, that fans can be the, the harshest critics. Um, but it's a, relationship with the texts and I'm using text more broadly here than just the physical copies that is based much more on a uh, uh, more pure enjoyment of what's coming out of that. They, they haven't been commoditized in the same way. There's not the same kind of curatorial sense that I think we start to see much more in the song. Um, this again, broadly speaking, The types of approaches we see in the song are much, much uh, closer to the types of almost scholarly approaches that we would take today, taking different texts, different copies of the same poem and collating them, trying to figure out what's the best text, trying to gather all the possible examples of this text that we can trying to gather all of the poems by a certain person so that we have their poetic output trying to restore something that was lost and get as accurate a picture of what this poetic um output was really like it's uh it's a more academic approach, and it's certainly not to say, by any stretch of the imagination, that you didn't also very much have the more kind of fan-oriented approach in the song. Because I think there's no question that you did, that uh, you know that you had people that were certainly reading these poems because they loved them. So it's not as much that the the fan type approach uh, stops in the song so much as. The more academic approach, the more scholarly uh, curatorial approach is not there in the Tongue. I saw. Essentially, no evidence of of poetic, uh, uh, you know, anthology—not anthology. I should say personal, private literary collections really functioning that way. Individual literary collections. Great,
1: thank you. Now, um, moving from the song to an even wider um, discussion of implications, the last thing I want to ask you before we um, wrap up with a couple of closing questions is about um, the the comments that you made in the book that gesture toward potentially broader implications of your focus case study to not just other time periods, but also potentially other fields. And you mentioned history, religion. Can you speak very briefly to what you think the broader implications are of this study for people working outside the field of literature?
0: I think essentially we're all dealing with texts, right? Right we're dealing I shouldn't say that of course archaeologists and all sorts of people are uh, dealing with uh, all sorts of other types of material sources but for those of us who are working <laughs> primarily with texts the question of the history behind the particular instantiation of this work in this particular text is a very important and meaningful one because we're using these sources as As evidence to say something about uh, a period that we're distanced from chronologically and these texts are serving as our way to get at that period. Well, if those texts are dramatically changed from the period we're trying to talk about, that's, uh, that's very meaningful. That changes the way that we approach those texts. It changes the way we think about that period. When we look at the the, uh, poetry we have from the Tang, if we think we have Tang poetry, then we're going to get to a very different place from thinking that uh, we have, you know, 0.01% 001 percent of Tang poetry. If we're talking about religious texts, I mean it, the most obvious example here is something like Dunhuang, which has radically changed our understanding of the development of Chan Buddhism and the kind of uh, the material aspects of um, of Taoism uh, and Buddhism in this period. The types of popular religious practices that people had. There's a lot of work done being done right now on uh, on bamboo manuscripts and manuscripts from earlier periods and you know I'm certainly uh, uninformed about this relatively speaking but it seems clear that it's opening up whole new worlds of understanding what the actual intellectual and social context of these periods was really like Uh, what does it mean when these checks these texts change over time to our understanding of what they're saying and what the period is really like and I think any text based uh, field uh, should be thinking very carefully about these questions and I think we are starting to see that in a lot of cases I think there's a much deeper understanding of print culture in the uh, you know in the Song and later periods than there was not that long ago because there's been important uh, work uh, by Lucille John and, and others on those types of those types of topics and they change the way we think about texts and they change the way we think about historical evidence.
1: Thank you. Well, Christopher, there's um, this has been wonderful for me. Um, there's clearly a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything before we wrap up? Uh, In particular, that you'd like to mention for listeners that we haven't had a chance to talk about but that you think is is important or crucial?
0: I don't know. I just think that it's, I think one of the things that motivated me through all of this was a desire to have a better understanding of how people. Uh, of how this literature existed for the people who created it and the people who first uh, received and enjoyed it. And that there are contexts in which we're naturally going to distance ourselves from that when we're thinking about things critically. But I think it's something that we should never forget, that uh, these things – Originated in a particular type of social, cultural, and material context. And that if we don't pay attention to how somebody read, Or heard, or composed, or spoke, a poem in the Tang or a religious dialogue in the Song, then we're missing something that's vitally important, uh, vitally important to our understanding of that period, of that discourse, and of those people. And I'm really glad that this happened to be something that I was curious about, not for any particularly uh, deep reason the beginning but i think partly because i came to the literature kind of late i wondered how the heck did did people get poems how did people get a poem in the tongue i mean i know they didn't go to a store and buy a book of poem uh how how did they get them and i think that basic question uh, uh, led to pretty much everything else that ended up happening in the book mm-hmm.
1: So now that the book is out, and congratulations on that, um, you've you've alluded to earlier in our conversation the next project. What's inspiring you right now? What are you working on now that the book's done?
0: I'd really like to direct. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah, I'm the the next project is looking at ways of organizing and uh, and transmitting and using what I am broadly calling uh, literary information. And, you know, obviously this comes out of some of the concerns that I had in the, in in this first book. Uh, I'm interested in how people put, um, put, Literature to use uh, in a variety of different contexts. In uh, obviously, the exam is the most obvious context, but there are also all sorts of social contexts and all sorts of compositional contexts where uh, previ- the literary inheritance is essentially used as a kind of information base from which to build these new these new products. And uh, I'm looking at in part prefaces to anthologies, and I didn't deal with anthologies in the first book for a a couple of different reasons, but um, one of the reasons is they... uh, Prefaces to anthologies tended not to go into much detail about how the material objects were collected, whereas uh, prefaces to individual literary collections talked about that a lot more. Uh, so they just didn't give me the kind of the, the kind of information that I needed. Um, but for this next project, I'm really more interested in ways people thought about uh, that information. Ways they grouped it, ways they categorized it, ways they um, ways they kind of sifted through it and discarded some of it. Something that comes up again and again in prefaces to anthologies is that one of the goals of a given anthology is to pick out the best examples of X so that other people don't have to wade through every Thing to you know get to the get to these finest examples, and that's really a form of information management. Um, and uh, things like shu are something that I want to look at in a lot more detail. What does it mean to take something that was a whole poem? And chop it into little bits, and have one bit in a section about how to talk about the moon, and another section, another bit in a section about how to, you know, talk about uh, talk about orchids or chrysanthemums or something like that. Suddenly, you have these lines taken away from their original artistic uh, aesthetic context, and then they're going to be reused. I mean, it's a form of it's a it's a form of sampling essentially, and uh, what are the aesthetic implications of uh, of doing this? What does it say about the way people thought about the literary inheritance? And that's, you know, pretty broad, but those are the kind of questions that are animating me going into the next project.
1: Well, that sounds great. And thank you so much for talking with us today, Christopher. It's been great fun for me, and the book is fantastic. So thank oh, you. Oh,
0: thanks. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. It's uh yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at how much I enjoy talking about it, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for being with us today, and we'll see you again next time.